0: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty.
1: Radio,
2: radio this is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis That's and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8.30am.
1: Only double.
3: Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is the 2nd of March. That's right. We're into the third month of the year. How are you feeling, Inez and Layla?
0: Goodness gracious is the only word I have. The time (laughs) is flying
3: by. Yeah, Yeah, it looks like you don't have to be having fun for time to fly. No.
4: Sometimes you could just be a little bit sad, but chill, you know? Having a good time anyways. Sometimes it goes way faster when you're really stressed. Yes,
3: <laughs> that is true. Uh, time flies when you literally are running around like a headless chalk. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. Um, okay, well, uh, hopefully everybody else is, uh, not in, uh, into, Distressed of the state, running around, uh, completely dysregulated. Uh, I hope that... (laughs) No, no, not me.
0: (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying that we are. No, not at all. I put on a really fun, colourful outfit today, and I'm ready to take on the day. So you all put your colourful outfits
3: on, too, and listen to this show. Yeah, think about a cross between, uh, like Pucci, uh, Emilia Pucci designs, crossed with uh, a beautiful sweater. Um yeah, that's um, right. Sweater dresses. Yeah, you're doing the high low fashion thing. Anyway, uh <laughs> one thing I was thinking about on the ride to work as well. The ride to work, the ride to radio, uh, is I really wish that I learned how to ride a bike when I was a kid. And, uh, for anybody listening right now, if you have a young person in your life and you're like, well, I don't know if they should learn how to ride a bike yet. You know, you don't have to have them riding on the road doing anything intense. You can just take them to a park if you have the means to, um, have your kid riding a bike. And there's a lot of really good refurbished bikes out there that you can get for fairly cheap. Um, it's a, it's a skill that will stand you in good stead, I think, uh, for the, uh, rolling climate crisis and also just uh, a nice way to to ease some independence into there. So that's my little tip. That's my tip for uh, my parents many years ago. Why didn't you teach me how to ride a bike, mom and dad? Uh, love you. Love you very much. Thank you for supporting me in my bike riding endeavors as an adult. Love you. Um, and also, if you're listening and you can't ride uh, and you are an adult, please know that I learned how to ride as an adult and it is not beyond you to do the same. Anyway, we have plenty on for you today. Uh, maybe I'll kick it off. We're going to uh, start by hearing part of a recording of the, universe, uh, of the University of Melbourne's 2022 A.N. Smith Lecture in Journalism, Va O Matangi, Climate Journalism for the Frontlines, delivered by Dr. langipoeva Poiva Sherelle Jackson on 21st of September last year. And Langipoeva is a Samoan journalist and host of An Impossible Choice, which is a podcast series on the existential nature of the climate crisis in the Pacific. And then after that, we're going to be joined by Sheree Lowe, Executive Director of the Durn Durn Center for Excellence in Aboriginal Social and Emotional Wellbeing at the Victorian Aboriginal Community-Controlled Health Organization, or VACHO. And Sheree's going to speak with us about the devastating findings reported in the co- Victorian coroner's recently Released report: Suicides of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Victoria, 2018 to 2022. And uh, this report highlights the impacts of a systemic failure to centre Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's social and emotional well-being, which the Ballarat Durrand Centre has recently been resourced to begin addressing through the development of an Aboriginal-led suicide response strategy. And of course. This is going to include some distressing content. This is obviously a difficult topic to talk about. Um, And so when we do come to that interview, we'll provide you with some resources for support lines you can call and also let you know if you want to um, tune out for that and then tune back in to catch the rest of the show.
0: And then we'll be joined by Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre, The Centre has joined calls from over 40 organisations urging the federal government to establish whistleblower protections that would enable migrant workers to report exploitation without risking their visas through the Breaking the Silence proposal, which has been led by the Migrant Justice Institute and Human Rights Law Centre. And Matt will join us to speak about the need for reform, whistleblower protections, and why it's so vital to stamp out worker exploitation, abuse and wage theft.
4: And finally, we'll be joined by Charlie Murphy, who is a trans sex worker. She is one of the organisers of the International Working Girls Day Rally, which will be held Wednesday, 8th of March, next week. Today, Charlie joins us to discuss the fatal attack of trans sex worker Kimberly McRae in January 2020, what trans justice could look like, and the current state of queer politics and sex worker rights.
3: Yeah, big show coming up and also some... Um, obviously sensitive and distressing content. So just a reminder now, um, if at any time you feel distressed, you want to, uh, tap out and talk to someone, you can always call Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. That's 1300 224 636 or Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You're listening to Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. One,
1: three, one, five.
5: Do you believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne, to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. (laughs) Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers' Union's Godfrey Mose and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter.
4: These are the news headlines for Thursday the 2nd of March. A recent not guilty verdict on the killing of Kimberly McRae has left sex workers and advocates shocked and angry. Ms McRae was killed in 2020 in Sydney after the accused, Hector Valencia, engaged her for sex work. Valencia was found not guilty of murdering Ms McRae and has been found guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. During the trial, the defence reportedly relied on harmful and offensive stereotypes of trans women and cited transphobic and homophobic defences such as trans and gay panic. Advocates and sex worker alliances say the verdict is extremely distressing to many members of their communities and follows a long history of the police and courts devaluing the lives of sex workers and trans people.
0: In other news this week... The urgent need for whistleblower protections for migrant workers who face exploitation and abuse at work is being called for by a coalition of migrant advocates, legal providers and unions. Advocates are calling for a new visa that allows migrant workers to remain in Australia and pursue justice where workplace rights have been breached and for protections against cancellation of visas for migrants who act against employer wrongdoing. As part of the call for action, the Migrant Justice Institute and Human Rights Law Centre have released data revealing that three-quarters of migrant workers in Australia have experienced wage theft. They say that Australia's visa system forces many workers to choose between their residency and their workplace rights.
3: Also in headlines, and with a warning to First Nations listeners that this headline does contain details that may be distressing, the Yuruk Justice Commission returned this week for another two weeks of public hearings. The latest hearings delve further into the child protection system, with the Commission told of police abductions of First Nations children that have destroyed families, including racist court processes where pleas to retain custody in a safe family environment were rejected in favor of orphanages where children were subjected to forced labor. Yurok continues to develop an official public record on the impact of colonization on First Nations people in Victoria and will be recommending actions to address historic and ongoing injustices.
4: And finally, in headlines this week, A parliamentary inquiry into the Federal Employment Services System has recommended that the controversial Parents' Next welfare scheme be abolished and replaced by a new service that lessens mutual obligations and offers cash incentives for vulnerable parents. The Inquiry found that the current scheme developed under the former coalition government is, quote, now locked into a punitive frame and does too much harm, unquote. The scheme has faced strong criticism from welfare advocates and women's groups for several years, but the Inquiry stopped short of recommending advice from many advocates to make the scheme entirely voluntary and without punitive compliance measures. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, 2nd of March. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM.
2: The Uruk Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Monday, February 27th to Friday, March 10, Uruk is holding public hearings with First Peoples witnesses who have experienced injustice in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at urukjusticecommission.org. A 3CR supporter.
6: So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Joma Umbinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30 p.m. on 3CR Community
3: Radio.
1: I I be be
3: and we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. And now we're going to hear part of a recording of the University of Melbourne's 2022 A.N. Smith Lecture in Journalism. Va Omatangi, Climate Journalism from the Front Lines delivered by Dr. Langipoeva Sherelle Jackson on 21st September, 2022. Langipoeva is a Samoan journalist and host of An Impossible Choice, a podcast series on the existential nature of the climate crisis in the Pacific. In this lecture, she explores the cultural nuances of reporting on climate in the Pacific, calling for international media to reject, quote, parachute, parachute journalism, end quote, and instead empower local voices
7: lover so from anewia so no wa otu la yotsu nei ileso wa ole la ni poiva ole ili ili ole so le wa si lifiti ma le e lo umimitsa etsau aves uafa otu wa a wo umaya la ma ma so se yo uwanu atsin yo faiva that was basically a hello <laughs> I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the unceded land on which we are meeting here tonight, the Wurundjeri people. I am grateful and pay my respects to the traditional owners, to the elders of the past, present, and emerging. So today is my son's birthday. His name is Toa Imatsangil Langi. This is for my son Toa. You are indeed the brave warrior that faces the storm. He has been displaced for two years due to the pandemic, and I hope that in years to come, when he Googles his mother's name, if Google is still a thing, this will pop up and it will make him smile. This is the closest I have been to home since the beginning of the pandemic. I was in the U.S. for a fellowship when Samoa's borders closed. Due to a combination of the impact of Trump's immigration policy the burden of a Samoan passport, and New Zealand's hostility towards the returning Pacific Island citizens through their borders, I have been unable to return home since January 2020. So tonight is like a coming home for me, and I'm grateful to the University of Melbourne for giving me this opportunity. You are welcome to invite me again. (laughs) And it is on that note I start my story. My name is Lange Poiva Sherelle Jackson. Langipoiva means sky of nine nights. It is a chiefly title bestowed to me by my family and stands for the nine nights that the traditional creator, Tangaloa Langi, had to sleep to gather his strength to build the island of Sava'i, where I'm from. All Samoans, including my sisters in the front here, have names that are tied to land, sea, sky, a milestone, A relative or an event of note. That's how we marked milestones in oral history. I start therefore with the value of land to our people, to the people of the Pacific, and how that story, as we told it through an impossible choice, became the story that resonated greatly to the plight of our islands. I begin, therefore, with how we came to create the masterpiece that is an impossible choice, a podcast series by the Guardian's specific project under the leadership of Kate here. Last year, about six months before COP26, I get a call from Kate. She said, I want to talk to you about something. Now, I know usually that involves some amazing story idea that I had to quickly piece together to meet a deadline, waking up random politicians in the middle of the night, harassing their children via Facebook Messenger, or getting my siblings to call up an ex-boyfriend related to the wife of the son of a certain minister. (laughs) I have three sisters, so there's a lot of sources out there. So when we finally had this call, I was absolutely blown away by the proposal that she had. She wanted to tell the story of the existential crisis faced by Pacific Island Atoll Nations. When faced with a complete loss of land and left with the choice to leave or stay on their land once the tides rise and their land succumb to the rising seas. Lucky for her, I had three years of my Ph.D. research under my belt, on the very issue of state sovereignty implications of climate change and the legal recourses that islands can pursue to preserve the statehood and their legal personalities. I was in, like deeply in, and she didn't need to ask me twice. The only problem was this, it was a podcast. It was a podcast. Audio isn't my thing or her thing or any print journalist thing. Both of us are print journalists, and, well, since we're all, a lot of us here are media people, we all know those are two different breeds of human beings. Where radio journalists are brief and succinct, print journalists wax lyrical about the most mundane of topics. Also, no print journalist has ever had to watch the sound of their voice. We use ums and ahs and say half sentences like it's going out of style during interviews. So... With an extraordinary team of podcast professionals, we set about laying out the story we wanted to tell. I've been a part of international collaborations before, but this one was different. My colleagues were extremely respectful and were guided by my advice when it came to cultural nuances and regional relevance. At our first meeting, we had a call to flesh out the issue. We bounced ideas around and shared anecdotes from my childhood shared stories of people I knew and my own family's experience of climate change, the cyclones, floods, and you know, the average life of a Pacific Islander. When I wrote the first part of the script, the producers both asked if I could insert more of my story into the script. I was taken aback. You spend your whole career as a journalist taking I out of every sentence and staying far away from every piece only to be thoroughly thrust right into it in telling the climate story. But the climate story was also my story, unavoidably so. I also lived through all of what the crisis entails. And sometimes I forget in my pursuit to be objective and to tell the story that I am also a survivor and an eyewitness to the climate crisis on our islands. So I obliged and peppered the whole script of the story with how I gave birth amid storms, how our entire village huddled in the church, the last remaining stronghold in our village, so we may all survive, and how the roof of that very church flew off, and we all had to seek refuge amid debris and severely injured relatives, and all the while trying to save our paralyzed grandmother who could only be carried to safety. During the podcast, I had calls with my siblings to make sure that I captured what I recalled of the earlier cyclones accurately. I was only eight. It allowed us a space to not just reflect, but also to laugh at ourselves and some of the horrifying things we went through. Like my uncle hanging on the roof of our valley as it was being blown off and seeing him hanging in midair, blown around like a rag doll. We all laughed collectively at that memory. That's how we deal with trauma in Samoa, like many of our islands. But reporting for international audiences requires me to shift my lenses so that the narrative suits their perception of our reality. As such, laughing about my uncle hanging from a corrugated iron roofing during a cyclone while hanging on to his lava lava or skirt, would not go down well for some who are just becoming acquainted with the severity of the climate crisis on our islands. Bridging the divide between local reporting on climate and international reporting has been a journey. When I report to Samoan audiences, I don't need to explain certain concepts because they come naturally from lived experiences. My local readers understand the environmental shifts due to climate. My international readers have to be acquainted with the islands. It's Samoa, not Somalia. (laughs) Fiji is not the same as Samoa as well. So they have to be acquainted about the islands, where they are, and what we stand to lose. In an impossible choice, I found myself discussing events that my colleagues found absolutely heartbreaking. Yet for me, it was normality. For our family, for friends who survived and continue to live in strife, this was a norm that occurred every year. But this norm had to be translated to a greater story. And I took great pride in working with my colleagues to bring the voices of island nations to the forefront. With the Judith Nielsen Institute and the Guardian's support, we reached out to field reporters who conducted interviews in local languages. I interviewed people in Samoan and dabbled into Valuan during some of the interviews. For an international media outlet to do this required understanding the news landscape, reaching good talent, and taking the effort to reach the hard-to-reach places. As the only Pacific Islander in the team, I did feel responsible to ensure that we were adhering to cultural protocol and nuances in the communities we were reporting from. So for example, in Samoa, if you say thank you to someone, you say thank you on behalf of the chief. On this occasion, I had to say thank you on behalf of the owners of the Guardian and the CEO, which sounded really awkward, but you know, it had to be done. There were two occasions where I noted that had a Pacific Islander not been in the room, a certain cultural nuance would not have been noted. One was a script reference to a Paramount chief. One of the producers had drafted the reference and wrote the introduction to an interview of a Paramount chief and stated it like this. Our reporter interviewed the Paramount chief there in reference to a chief on an island off of Papua New Guinea. I changed the reference to the paramount chief, his name, his title, the name of the village and the island. My colleague queried it, and I asked him at the time, would you say the queen there, or would you say President Biden there? If the answer was no, then this paramount chief was due his full title, place, and realm. That was an important moment for my colleague and I as they did acknowledge the oversight. This is also a good moment to note that under Kate's uh, leadership and with some harassment from me, the Guardian now uses chiefly titles in second reference, making it the first international media outlet to do so. I think that deserves a clap. Um, As you know, in Samoa, if you have a chiefly title, the second reference is that first title. So Langipoiva would be second reference in a story for local media. When we are covered by international media, the last name is usually used. So... It's it's extremely disrespectful in print, and The Guardian had chosen to observe under Kate's pressure um, to then utilize the chiefly titles as per cultural protocol. The second issue was in reviewing the final version of the podcast, I found myself listening to instrumentals that one would hear from other podcasts in the UK or the US. They were sounds not native to the Pacific, nor reminiscent of the cultures that we stand to lose due to the crisis. I brought this up to Kate, and in a matter of 48 hours, the superstar editor committed to finding the appropriate music. She would listen to sounds and send me snippets for translations. At one point, she sent me a snippet of a song by a Samoan rap artist to translate and said the sound would be perfect. I listened to it and laughed. The song was about the pancake stall at the Savalalo market. (laughs) Like the guy was describing going in to buy some pancakes from the stall. Yes, we rap about the weirdest stuff. (laughs) So it was funny for us and very entertaining. In the end, the package came out beautifully, and we honored the voices of the Pacific and the sounds of the Pacific. I would like to acknowledge here all the amazing voices we featured and special mention to my friend Vanessa Niwahasen pictured here who shared her story of her family during Cyclone Evan when her home was wiped away and her children nearly swept away with moments to spare. I acknowledge her bravery in sharing her story and note that she and her family are some of the first climate migrants from Samoa to Australia. These stories were told because we had access, local knowledge the Guardian's intention to tell the stories from the ground, the financial support and willingness of the editor to do due justice to the story. But not all journalism that involves collaboration between the international and local newsroom does justice to the story. The foreign correspondent and parachute journalism model continues to be problematic for the Pacific, not just for climate reporting, but for general news. We need to acknowledge that there are talented journalists on the ground who are capable of reporting the news, and relationships should be built with those journalists to cover issues from our islands without the need to send in a correspondent each time. We too can speak for ourselves.
3: And that was part of a recording of the University of Melbourne's 2022 A.N. Smith Lecture in Journalism, Va Omatangi, Climate Journalism from the Front Lines, delivered by Dr. Poiva, Sherelle Jackson on the 21st of September last year. Poiva is a Samoan journalist and host of An Impossible Choice, a podcast series on the existential nature of the climate crisis in the Pacific. And in this lecture, she explored the cultural nuances of reporting on climate in the Pacific, calling for international media to reject, quote, parachute journalism, end quote, and instead empower local voices. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. And we're now going to go to a track. This one is Blessed by Becca Hatch and Tentendo.
8: Ding,
9: to 3CR's annual International Women's Day broadcast, 24 hours of women and non-binary news, views and music on Wednesday the 8th of March. We want to celebrate the resistance, talent, strength and power of women and genderqueer living here in the Kulin Nation and of those living, fighting and creating change all over so-called Australia and the world. This International Women's Day celebration is a celebration of feminism that knows that liberation from gender depression can never be achieved without dismantling all systems of domination and subjugation. From midnight Sunday, the 7th of March, until midnight on Monday, the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and non binary presenters, producers, and musicians. For details, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD2023.
0: And now for a little change of pace, we're going to be playing Feel It 2 by Rona.
3: That was Feel It Too by Rona and before you heard Blessed by Becca Hatch and Tentendo. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM.
10: Interested in real community resistance to extractivism around the globe? Beehive Design Collective's Art of Resistance World Tour from Turtle Island, Canada brings us complex political discourse in March, through stories, murals, music and more. Join Liz Downs from the Rainforest Action Group for insights from her recent trip to Ecuador, where indigenous and peasant groups are fighting back against big mining and how their wins can inspire the global movement. March 2nd at Black Spark, Northcote, starting 6pm and followed by live tunes and panel discussion. Entry free or by donation. More info at AidWatch or Melbourne Rainforest Action Group on Facebook.
3: We might even go to a third track. That's right. Uh, we're bringing you the bangers this morning on Thursday Breakfast. This one is "Do It Again" by a girl.
8: Maybe you, don't feel Even though I know you, know you wanna do it again, do it again. Maybe when you, don't follow I can let you, I can let you do it again, do it again, do it again. When push upon me, baby, ready if you're ready to put it on me, baby. Yeah, apply, I'm pressing, lady. That I'll be posting up on my Instagram. Look me in my eyes, I can feel that. Splashing in the air, can you feel that? In another world, when I went, you know you feel it. you <laughs>
3: Do it again by a girl. You're listening to Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR eight five five AM
2: Are you a Three C R subscriber?
0: We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance.
3: It's just forty dollars concession, eighty dollars wage. for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today.
10: 3CR Radical Radio.
9: Tune in to 3CR's annual International Women's Day broadcast, 24 hours of women and non-binary news, views, and music on Wednesday, the 8th of March. We want to celebrate the resistance, talent, strength and power of women and gender queer living here in the Kulin Nation and of those living, fighting and creating change all over so-called Australia and the world. This International Women's Day celebration is a celebration of feminism that knows that liberation from gender depression can never be achieved without dismantling all systems of domination and subjugation. From midnight Sunday the 7th of March until midnight on Monday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and non-binary presenters, producers and musicians. For details, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2023.
3: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au.
2: The Uruk Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Monday, February 27th to Friday, March 10th, Uruk is holding public hearings with First Peoples witnesses who have experienced injustice in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at urukjusticecommission.org. A 3CR supporter.
9: North Preston Life Saving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and membership with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists. The North Preston Life Saving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment, including a kiln. To find out more and to show your support for independent creators, please visit their Facebook page, North Preston Life Saving Club. North Preston Life Saving Club is a 3CR supporter.
2: Published or not has been on air for over 20 years. And
5: in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith.
2: Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by
5: David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and
2: ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app.
5: So join us... Every Thursday at eleven thirty on three i R.
8: I've been working on my rear end, that's right. I'm gonna change the ending. Gonna throw away my title
7: and toss it in the
0: And now we will be joined by Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre. And the centre is joined calls from over forty organizations urging the federal government to establish whistleblower protections. Uh, under the new Breaking the Silence proposal, and he joins us today to speak about the need for reform, whistleblower protections, and why it's so vital to stamp out worker exploitation, abuse, and wage theft. Thanks so much for returning here today, Matt.
11: Oh, good morning, glad happy to be back.
0: Well, we're happy to have you. Uh, we wanted to talk about something really, really important today, which I know that the Migrant Workers Centre has recently put out a media release for, and the Migrant Justice Institute and the Human Rights Law Centre has urged the federal government to establish whistleblower protections that would enable migrant workers to report exploitation without risking their visa through the Breaking the Silence proposal. And I know you have also joined, uh, the centre has joined the call alongside over 40 other organisations. Could you tell us a little bit more about the proposal?
11: Yeah, so... What we've been asking for for some time now is for the government to provide protection to people on temporary visas to report the wrongdoing of their bosses. So, um, people might have seen in the media there was a story about a uh, a woman called Indigit who uh, was working basically for free for seven months um, because her employer had caught her in this <coughs> excuse me in this scam where she would have to pay basically for her visa to come in. And the challenge that we've got in Australia is that many temporary migrants are bound to their boss. So not only does their boss control their paycheck, but they also control their residency. And that makes speaking up and, you know, raising issues of uh, underpayment, wage theft, or other workplace abuses really difficult because our system's got this structure where people can be temporary for many, many years and disrupting your sponsorship with your employer could disrupt a pathway, you know, your pathway to permanence that you've been working on for up to a decade or even more in some cases. So what we're calling for is for the government to introduce uh, a couple of things. The first is a visa, a new type of visa where workers who are being exploited in the workplace um, can get a new visa that allows them to continue to stay in the country and gives them work rights. Um, while their cases are being heard. So if they raise it with their union or with, um, or with the Fair Work Ombudsman or something like that. Um, and the second thing is what we want to see are, um, protections built into the visa system so that where workers have been exported at work, they won't suffer any adverse outcome for their existing visa or for another visa that they're applying for in the future.
0: No, absolutely. I think it's really important and thank you for, um, you know, sharing it in a really accessible, understandable way. And as you've mentioned, like you've come on the show to talk about the Lives in Limbo report as well, which, uh, is very similar to what the same thing that we have been sharing on 3CR and, you know, through the Migrant Worker Center. And that's very clear in, you know, the Breaking the Science proposal. And it's, it's unfortunate, but you know, it's not surprising, sadly, that, you know, I think from my memory, like up to like three quarters of all migrant workers experience wage theft. Do you want to briefly refresh our memory as to what some of the other findings were in the Lives in Limbo report too?
11: The Breaking the Silence um, proposal that's come out from the HRLC and the Migrant Worker Justice Institute, I think, and supported by 40 different organisations, really shows just how civil society is come to rally behind the cause of migrant workers in this country. Because as you say, the, the incidence of wage theft is so prevalent across our society and it, it reaches into every part of our economy as well. It's not just hospital, it's not just on the farms, um, but we see you know, blue collar, white collar workers all in the same situation. And their common theme here is um, that they're on these temporary visas. And if we, if we look back to the report that we put out um, a bit over a year ago now, Um, what we found was that the biggest determining factor about whether or not a migrant worker has experienced wage theft or not is if they arrived on a temporary form of visa um, and if they had no pathway to permanent residency. And that's one of the really big things that we're pushing for and have been uh, in conjunction with unions and other partners across the um, civil society sector. Um, we, We need to see a pathway to permanency available for those that want it because... Maintaining this constant temporary nature, this, this insecurity of residency, this insecurity of, of tenure at work and, and in our community is, is creating the circumstances where dodgy bosses can get away with some pretty, pretty horrendous things. So, um, what we're, you know, we're about, again about to release another report in a couple of weeks time that looks at the experience of migrant workers in the workplace. And again, those results um, are quite shocking in regards to, um, what it means for people's safety at work um, if they're on temporary visas. So we we know that there's one there's a big review happening in Canberra at the moment, um, and it's, uh, we're quite hopeful um, that out of that review, a number of the the recommendations that we've put forward for so pathways to permanency, whistleblower protections, breaking the nexus between employers and um, and and migrants to allow them to to, to report. Um, more easily, we're we're confident that um, these things will will, will be picked up as as important reforms.
0: Absolutely, and I think also on that point with the new revisions, um, from what I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the current government is reviewing its migration policy and is devising strategy for faster and greater migrant intake, which you know, clearly means that many people will be arriving or returning to Australia. And I know this does present, you know, a historic opportunity for reform. Um, But I guess in detail, what reforms are being called for? I know you touched on them earlier, like a new type of visa. Um, What other things are all the organisations calling for?
11: In this breaking the file proposal, do you mean? Yes, I mean. Or more more broadly? yeah. Yeah, look, um... There's really two main thrusts of the breaking the science proposal. One is and it's about this whistleblower protection. So um people who haven't dealt with the visa system um might not have a lot of you know, line of sight on this, but when you when you apply for a visa, there's a question on it that that asks you, um, have you ever breached the conditions of a previous visa? Uh and if you're an international student and you've worked more than twenty hours a week, uh sorry, more than twenty hours uh more than forty hours a fortnight. Um, or if you have worked longer than a certain amount of time or, um, or you know, done something against the conditions of your visa because your boss has basically put you in a situation where you need to do that to either survive or to keep your job or to uh, maintain your employment, um, it, it sends up a big red flag to the Department of Home Affairs when you're trying to get your next visa. Um, so what we're saying is the whistleblower protections need to include a provision Um, In the Migration Act, that means that workers who are exploited by bad bosses um, don't suffer the consequences when they go for their next visa or when they apply for permanent residency. So that's what we talk about when we talk about whistleblower protections. And the the second part of that really is for those people that may not not want to stay in Australia full-time or um, may not want to stay in Australia permanently or indeed... um, Maybe don't have a pathway to permanency under the current, the current system. There should be a a short-term visa that allows them to stay. So we call it the justice visa. Um, and it would allow those people who are pursuing cases against their bosses to see justice in court because unfortunately the system moves too slowly for for many people. Um, you know, unfair dismissal, the unfair dismissal process, for example, um, takes many, many months. But if you're on a sponsored visa with an employer, you've only got 60 days to find new employment or you're forced to leave the country. So there are lots of folks out there who are being fired who just aren't getting access to justice because our system doesn't work for them. And this justice visa would make a really big difference in that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a really important, uh, much needed visa. And obviously, 60 days is not enough time at all. And it's definitely... um, definitely quite threatening to your your safety and to yeah your your livelihood and I think what I'm what I'm hearing is that employers have like really no problem abusing and exploiting their workers and you know without whistleblower protections people are scared to speak up and you know if they do then they get the axe and then the cycle just continues and as you've mentioned before like the conditions of exploitation are so clearly built into the visa system do you see like any um any challenges that might come from really trying to carry out this reform because i'm i'm sure a lot of people probably won't be happy with it either
11: yeah look i I think broadly speaking um those people that support workers are very, you know, very positive about the reforms that we're, we're pushing, putting forward. I think that you'll find that there are some employer groups that are a little bit unhappy about particularly the concept of um, breaking the, that kind of power dynamic between the migrant employee and the, and the employer. Um, we know that there are a lot of people out there that have really built a business model around, um, you know, exploiting migrant workers in particular. Um, so, you know, we can expect some pushback from them. I think though that over the last four to five years and particularly, you know, in the, the, the time coming out of COVID, I think there's been a real shift in the way that this country, um, has started to talk about migration. And, you know, while not everybody, you know, there are still people out there that don't support, um, Australia having a, a large migration program. But I think there's a, there's, there's many people out there now that really are starting to understand that. It, it's migrants that make Australia work and, and has been for, for, for many, many decades now.
1: Mm-hmm.
11: Um, we can't do this without our friends from overseas. Uh, and I think that the most important part of this is and, and what where the point that we come from is that no matter where people come from and no matter what they do, um, they should be treated with respect and dignity in the workplace and they should have access to all the same rights and conditions that those of us that were born in Australia had. So... I think that it's getting harder and harder for for those to be political, you know, our otherwise political opponents perhaps to be against these types of reforms because they are so logical and they are so sensible um, and they are directly targeted at making lives better for people. So um, I think that's why we've been really heartened to kind of start to see some industry groups as well come on board and start talking about the pathway to permanency. Um, They know that this... This visa system is, is broken and has been destroyed over the last couple of decades, uh, and and I think that we all understand that giving people the security to start building their lives and the stability to to kind of become full partners in our society and in our community is is a really good thing for everybody in Australia.
0: Absolutely, and I think you've you know really summarised it really well that yeah migrants are part of you know, what so-called Australia and there are so many organizations like yourself that have been really leading the way to show that, you know, everybody deserves the same rights and, you know, just because you're coming here and you are sponsored by somebody and that maybe things don't feel 100% solid yet, but knowing that it is a systemic reform that is needed is definitely really helpful. And it's really important that the, all the coalitions have, you know, really gotten together um, to stand up for what is right. and I think that's really amazing. Uh, I think, lastly, from, you know, your last point, if our listeners are migrant workers and they need support, where can they go? And also, how can the rest of us really help this proposal?
11: Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, if, there, if anyone out there is listening, um, the Migrant Workers gonna support. Any worker that was born overseas is having a bit of trouble at work, um, and they can get in contact with us at migrantworkers.org.au, and the website's available. I know I'm talking in English, but, but the website's available in a number of different languages, and they can book appointments in different languages too. And that goes for anyone out there that might know someone who's a migrant worker who's having a bit of a tough time. Um, you can help either help refer them, and we can we can talk to them in a language they can, they can understand, or. Um, indeed, you know, they can come along and help their their friend out as well. I think more broadly, though, the most important thing that anyone out there, any listener out there, um, is to join a union. I mean, the, the only, the only chance we have, um, is to, is to combine together in union and, and fight against workforce exploitation wherever it is. Uh, and our role, um, as, Uh, supporters of migrant workers but also supporters of all workers out there is that we need to to get together and join a union um, and fight for what's right in the workplace and I think that's the number one thing that I'd I'd say uh, any day of the week that anyone can do um, to help out folks around them.
0: Yeah 100% and we'll definitely put the information for the Migrant worker Centre in the show notes but thank you so much for joining us here today Matt and yeah I hope you have a good
11: day. Cool, always a pleasure. See ya.
0: That was Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers' Centre. The centre joined over 40 organisations urging the federal government to establish whistleblower protections that would enable migrant workers to report exploitation without risking their visa through the Breaking the Silence proposal, which has been led by the Migrant Justice Institute and the Human Rights Law Centre. And he spoke to us about the need for reform, protections, and why it's so vital to stamp out worker exploitation, abuse, and
2: wage theft. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs?
4: Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia. Produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne.
10: Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined.
8: Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else.
11: Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs.
2: Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women.
11: Muckety is a bad
8: deal,
10: but muckety is absolutely not a done deal.
2: You're listening to Women on the Line.
10: Welcome again to Lost in Science.
2: And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show.
9: You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network.
4: Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Annika Will this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play.
2: Tune in to Stick Together, worker
4: stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio
3: Network.
6: So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here never enough for both Ijoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues what makes you smile and adds a spring to your step what does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio
1: I wish
8: I knew how it would feel to be free
11: They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Morabin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah Yen I Pasaran is a new weekly programme on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Altarowa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
4: The following interview addresses violence towards sex workers, LGBTQI people and the murder of a trans woman. This content is distressing, so please take a moment to decide whether you would like to continue listening. If you require support, please call Lifeline on 131112 For LGBTQI peer support, call QLife on 1800 184 527. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can call 13-YARN for mob-only support on 139276. Next up, I'd like to welcome Charlie Murphy, who is a trans sex worker. She is one of the organisers of the International Working Girls Day Rally, which will be held next Wednesday, 8th of March in Sydney. Sorry, I just have a correction there. The number for Lifeline is 13 So she is one of the organisers of the International Working Girls Day rally, which will be held next week, Wednesday the 8th of March in Sydney. And today, Charlie joins us to discuss the fatal attack of trans sex worker Kimberly McRae in January 2020 whose killer, Hector Valencia, has been found not guilty of her m- murder. We will also cover what trans justice could look like and the current state of queer politics and sex worker rights. Good morning, Charlie. Good morning. So in our conversation today, we honour the life of Kimberly McRae by shedding light on the systemic forces that continue to permit violence against sex workers in the trans community. Charlie, you spoke at the visual days after Kimberley was murdered. Could you tell us more about that experience and outline what you understand led to Kimberly's death?
10: yeah so when, um, when we had the vigil originally it was very reactive, and at that stage we just we didn't have any information yet about about what had happened. You know, we we weren't sure about who did it or why it had happened. We knew that Kimberly was a trans woman. We knew that Kimberly was a sex worker. Um, um and we knew that she had been murdered, but we but we didn't know how it came about, whether it was from a client or mm. um or through something else. Um I mean we obviously had a sense that it had something to do um, with transphobia and whorephobia. Um, and, you know, through the process of this trial, we've obviously learned that he was a client of her um, and that her death came about because um, of him attacking her after learning her her status as, as a trans woman. Um it mirrors so many murders in Australia that have happened, um, you know, between men and um and, and trans women, um, that all follow similar lines.
1: Mm-hmm.
10: Um you know, men men murdering as women in this way happens, you know, it happens to sex workers, but it also happens in, in situations of, um, intimate, intimate partner violence. Um, you know, that is what happened, um, with the death of, with the, with the murder of uh, Melody Bruno in Wagga Wagga. And a very similar thing happened, um, in the outcome of, uh, the, the trial of Hercula. Um Ryan Rastoya, um you know it was essentially found along along similar lines um and it's always the story of um, that there was you know that there is this lack of in there is this lack of intention there mm-hmm. is this lack of intention to harm this lack of intention to kill, and it's that kind of denial of transphobia as a as a motivator in in these this death and these murders um, that is a great shame of our country. It is the denial of transphobia as a systematic killer in our society.
4: Absolutely. I think something that speaks to that that I noticed when I was doing some research for this is the statement, a statement from Judge uh, Justice Dina Yahia. Um, in at the beginning of her judgment she said quote it should be clearly understood that kim mcrae was entitled to live her life that she died is tragic unquote so this kind of description to me implies that this death was unexpected or unpreventable like a tragedy out of the hands of um, the killer i guess and I just wanted to hear about your response to that quote and your thoughts yeah.
10: on. I mean, uh, you know, when we when we think about tragedies like this, we should be able, able to think of them as that, that they shouldn't happen again. Mm-hmm. You know that, that that something should be done about them. Um, and, you know, we can either view them as something that we can change and tell the truth about them or or we can do what most people seem to do, which is treat them as some sort of force of nature. Yeah. You know, everything, so many things in media just reinforce the narrative that the death of sex workers and the death of trans people is something that we should... Come to expect in society, I shouldn't have to work with the fear that I'm going to lose my life, you know? In so many different types of workplaces, we expect a level of, of workplace health and safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's not treated in the same way of... In, in other industries, um, for for sex work, it's not it's not treated in the same way. It's not seen as an issue of our workplace safety. Um, you know, this is why we have industrial laws and protections in these societies. And instead, for sex work, um, the response is always about criminalisation and the police and and shutting the work down. And every time that this happened, uh, any level of violence is exhibited towards sex work. That, and, you know, there's always clamouring of that for a response. But every time sex workers say is that for us to not have stigma in our society, we need equal access to industrial law. We need equal access to safety at our job. And you know it's just so insulting to see the outcome of this trial. you know it's so insulting to see um, this narrative form around almost almost the sense of that he was acting in self defense from her I mean this was a seventy year old woman,
4: yes, and she it was, was
10: twenty three so she was seventy. You know, this is this is a man. This is a man killing what is essentially a pensioner, yeah. and and it's treated this way. It's truly you know?
4: horrifying. Yeah, I think one of the other things that really deeply shocked me was his statements really admitted to the motivation behind the attack being a transphobic rage and that was somehow thought of as acceptable when they were deciding the verdict and that leads me on to my next question which is about the gay panic defense in New South Wales this defense was abolished in 2019 that's nine years ago Um, New South Wales was one of the last states to do so how does the gay panic defence continue to impact people who fall at the intersection of trans and sex worker communities? And what could trans sex worker led justice look like?
10: Yeah, I mean I think I think what I think what the what the trial reveals and um and and what these limitations in law reveal is that Yes, we don't have we don't have gay panic and trans panic codified into law, mm. basically. But all these cases in which there is a man aggressing upon a trans woman, the way that they are treated in sentencing always follows a very similar pattern to the way that you know the way that our justice system is supposed unfairly weighted
1: mm-hmm.
10: for victims who are minorities um, and perpetrators who are not. I mean, you know, the parallels to that and death and custody, so death and custody is, um, you know, in, in entirely different in scale. Um, I think, you know, threads of similarity shows you that, you know, the laws that surround the way that our justice system functions are only, you know, can only be changed to a degree um, that still means that the actual systems themselves are are, um, are racist, are sexist, are Mm -hmm. uh, are transphobic. Um, And at the end of the day, you know, having these trials you know those trials are always after the fact, and the only form of justice is for these things to not happen again. Um, and the way that we stop these things from happening again is having an equitable society for trans people. You know we we are we are vilified every day in this country. We're vilified every day, and. And across the country and across the world, trans women and sex workers are being murdered. You know, just. We have a day called Trans Remembrance, and we, you know, we mark the lives that we've lost every year. And...
4: Yeah. It is a horrifying reality, and the truth needs to be shown in courts if that is what we have available at the time the truth needs to be told there if nothing else and finally on that note in terms of supporting this fight for safety and justice to all queer and trans sex workers the justice that they all deserve are there any upcoming actions and how can audience members assist that fight
10: yes so, in Sydney, we have an uh, event which was on um, International Women's Day, um, which um, we've particularly entitled International Working Girls Day, um, which is a rally for sex worker rights. Um, our demands are that um, uh, sex workers are put on to the Anti-Discrimination Act um, in, New- in New South Wales, in Australia, in fact, Northern Territory has just won, um, the first anti-discrimination protections in the world for sex workers. Um, so it is, um, actually quite historic that, um, Northern Territory and, uh, SWAP NT and other organisations and sex workers won that up there.
1: Mm-hmm.
10: Um, you we want full decriminalisation in, um, New South Wales, um, uh, as opposed to the partial decrimination decriminalisation model we cover at the moment. We want work, health and safety in the sex industry. We want access to um, industrial rights when there are non-compliance um, in our workplaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want the we want the right to work in um, safe migration pathways for migrant workers as well. So that's going to be at 1 p.m. on on the 8th of March, next Wednesday in Sydney, I'm at the Hyde Park Fountain. Um, and so. Uh, If you are a sex worker in Sydney, um, we encourage you to come and allies are welcome to to join as well.
4: Charlie, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you standing up to talk about this topic. Um, You take care and have a lovely day. Thank you. Bye. Charlie Murphy is a trans sex worker. She is one of the organisers of the International Working Girls Day rally, which will be held next Wednesday, the 8th of March in Sydney. And today, Charlie joined us to discuss the attack of trans sex worker Kimberly McRae in January 2020 and what... Trans justice could look like the current state of queer politics and sex worker rights, and that interview did contain some distressing content. So if you need support, please call Lifeline on 131114 for LGBTQI peer support. Call QLife on 1800184 five two seven and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who would like some mob only support you can call one three yarn on one three nine two seven six. You're listening to carry
10: the stories of our ancestors forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Teldom Chongo Edwards for Ballamoir, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival From 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR 855 on your radio dial. As I walk
1: alone
8: on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind
3: To the beat of clapstick and the dancing. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au
7: Accent to women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent to women. What a border! They don't
1: see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living
0: in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such
4: conflict every single day of their lives?
1: Accent to women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds.
4: On Community Radio 3CR.
3: back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM unfortunately we weren't able to get on to Sheree Lowe to speak about uh, the recent Victorian coroner's report into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander suicides but we hope to cover that soon and encourage people to go and read Vacho's media release about that and uh, become apprised of this issue and support the at Durndern Center but for now we're joined for uh, by uh, Irini from Rahu for a very quick impromptu interview interview um, about Rahu's recent uh, appearance at the Select Committee on the Cost of Living. It says it's a Victorian state inquiry. Irene, thank you so much for joining us.
12: No worries. Thanks for having me, Priya, and the rest of the Thursday team.
3: Yeah, of course. Um, appreciate you making the time on short notice. Um, and I think uh, it, it's great to catch you because uh, obviously, you know, this... With the federal budget coming up, there's obviously a lot of talk around the cost of living crisis and especially around housing questions. Um, so I was wondering if maybe you could take us through what this state level incri- inquiry was looking into, um, and maybe a bit of Rahu's key points, uh, given at the submission.
12: Yeah, for sure. So it was quite out of the blue that we got asked to speak at it and it was a really good opportunity. Um, and it's, uh, we thought it was a a state committee as well, but turns out it was a federal one. So yesterday, (laughs) yeah, we, um, were included as amongst many other organizations who've spoken earlier, um, in February. Um, and it was amazing to share the same sort of message across all housing advocates um, around the need for rent control, which we've been pushing pretty hard since last year um, with the Rent is Too High campaign. So a lot of the questions were around what recommendations, what next steps can happen um, to assist in you know, the largest expense that we all have, which is housing costs and particularly for renters which we know are like the largest um, third of the population who are growing, growingly becoming um, renters who can't afford to buy their own house. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure that includes a lot of us, um, myself included. So we were there to basically speak to our demands that we've had since that Rent is Too High campaign mm-hmm. um, and speak to that at a federal level for the need for a national strategy to rent control and to invest in public housing, We know that, you know, some states are attempting to sort of build their budgets in affordable housing. Um, However, we feel like it's a really important moment for the federal government to commit to funding um, specifically public housing bills, Mm -hmm. not community, not affordable, um, because we know that there's different models. Public housing is the one that we've known historically works. It's capped at 25%. It's sustainable, it's longer term for people, it builds a community around and people can actually see a future there for a longer period of time. Um, And we feel like the federal government can match, you know, funding by two to one with each state um, to make sure that, like, that commitment is properly tested rather than um, attempting different models. Uh, With rent control, it was a really interesting conversation because... We know that, um, going in, Ahuri, um, you know, ACARS, uh, a number of AUGs had spoken to the need for rent control. In fact, even the Productivity Commission had recently stated that the private market is the epicenter of the problem of affordable housing. Um, and so to hear the questions, um, particularly from Matt Canavan about, um, the fact that you know, he, he did, it seems like he did a quick Google while we were there and, and tried to say that it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really great to be able to share the fact that, you know, Australia has had rent control in the past. It has worked um, in the Australian context. It's worked all across Europe. Um, and, and yeah, it's great that that's becoming part of the conversation.
3: Yeah, totally. And I mean, one of the reasons, um, going back to your mention of public housing, one of the reasons why public housing is one of the most secure forms of tenure is because there is that rent control and the rent capping, um, at 25% of income. I mean, of course, we've seen, you know, widespread divestment from, uh, the public housing system. And, you know, you're, you're definitely right to question, um, the broader social housing model, which really, um, uh, lumps in community housing, which has a whole different set of rules and doesn't necessarily conform to that 25% cap. Um, but I was also um, wondering if you could comment on uh, some of what Rahu has uh, put in your submission about limitations on negative gearing.
12: Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so glad you asked, Priya. <laughs> <laughs> so that was also a great, um, a great moment to be able to talk more about negative gearing. I think with the kind of media scare that's happening at the moment around superannuation being taxed. I mean, look, we're talking about like 0.01% of people who have more than $3 in there. I don't know who they are, but like I just find it amazing that that's become such a scare campaign. And they started to speak about negative gearing Um, in those scare campaigns. We know that the Australian Institute put out numbers yesterday that we're losing as taxpayers over $18 billion a year um in negative gearing losses that goes straight to the top 10% um income earners in Australia. We did our own we did our own research on this last year and found that in the 2019 to 2020 period um it was upwards of 11 billion. Um so you know it's a huge amount of money that we're just losing as taxpayers um in terms of you know it going straight back into landlords' pockets. Um, it's a really massive incentive to keep propping up, um, you know, private rentals, uh, to keep buying into investments as housing. Um, and and we felt very strongly in our report that that money should go to funding public housing. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the whole Senate committee is about the cost of living, then, you know, Having some real conversations about how this would actually benefit the lowest income people, and growingly, like middle, mm-hmm. you know, middle income earners as well. Um, that's a that's an absolute chest of money there that could go straight into fixing the
3: problem. Yeah, yeah. We do feel that
12: we need it to be abolished. Um, sorry, <laughs> no. to answer your question. Um, and it was just amazing to see how much money there actually is there. But we we've sort of mapped out a bit of a plan to limit it to only one investment house Mm -hmm. um, so that you can only negative gear one house, but then also by 2028, it's eliminated entirely.
3: Yeah, incredible. I mean, I'm really looking forward to having a a detailed read of the submission because I think this is one of those, um, you know, potential sticking points for people who do have, uh, you know, profits uh that they have they stand to gain through this um but at the end of the day what's required is really this big systemic reform rather than looking at band-aid solutions like for example temporary top-ups to to payments um even though i know we should definitely be increasing uh Social Security to above the Henderson poverty line, but in terms of looking at housing supplement payments as a short term solution rather than a long term solution. And that would really require a much bigger reform in the way that housing is provided and the way that in- investment properties are um, regulated in this country. So, Irene, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this morning. I really appreciate you coming on on short notice. And um, yeah, thank you. And I hope you have a wonderful day.
12: Thank you. Much love to 3CR and keep up the amazing
3: work. Thanks, Priya. Thank you. And that was Irene Solidis noise from Rahu, the Renters and Housing Union, who just joined us to talk about Rahu's appearance at the Federal Senate Cost of Living hearing, where Rahu's submission addressed some key issues on housing justice and equity. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and this is all we have time for today. So, um, thank you so much for joining us this week. We really appreciate your time. Hopefully, we'll be able to come back to you to cover That coroner's report and the work of Balit Durndurn next week or the week after. Uh, But until then, take care and have a great day.
2: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.